Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 15th, 2013, and this is episode 1085 of the Survival Podcast. And I am freaking fired up today for a couple reasons. Number one, it is Friday, 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 and that means it's time for your calls. My favorite shows to do are the Friday shows. I actually hate screening the calls. It takes a long time. I hate all the editing. It takes a long time. I hate the fact that I have to work about two hours longer to do one of these shows than I do every other show that we do. But I love the result, I love doing them, and I love the fact that you, the audience, are part of these shows. And I want you to make a phone call sometime in the next couple weeks if you've never, especially first-time callers, have never done it before. You know, they say that on the radio, I'm going to make you a deal. If I hear somebody says they're a first-time caller and you follow the rules, I will make damn sure that I put your call on the air if I screen it. If I get to screen it. Some calls don't get screened, just do the volume, but I'll make this. If you say I'm the first time I've ever called in, I'll try to make sure that I definitely get you on the air. The rules. Call from a quiet area. Do not call from the back of a motorcycle running a chainsaw or a weed eater, or I don't know, with your head out the window of a Greyhound bus doing 90 miles an hour down the highway. Call me from a quiet area. If you're on a cell phone, find a place where you at least have two or three bars. And ask your question or make your point as soon as possible up front and give me the details following. That'll make it most likely that you get on the air. Before I get to your calls, oh, why I'm fired up? We have a fight for liberty on our hands today, folks. We're about to run it straight up the ass of some township thugs. Some people picking on a poor, you know, just a family, just out trying to make, a, trying to make their way, uh, the way we talk about with some basic homesteading out, not in the middle of a suburb, three-acre rural property that a town happens to wrap around. They want them to get rid of their animals. That's going to be our lead story today. I'll get to that. Then we'll take your calls. Um, but I'll, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm getting you fired up even in the home uh, or the housekeeping section today. We're going to do this, and we're going to do this fast and hard in a big way. And my hope is that we do it so well that the people attacking this lady end up just backing down. I'll tell you about that in our lead story today. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? You get Berkey Water Filtration Systems. That's what you're going to get. I mean, there's no surprise there. But why would you go get your Berkey from Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason? Why wouldn't you just go to, I don't know, a gun show or something where there's a preparedness guy at every gun show now or two or three of them and buy a Berkey from him? Because he's not the Berkey Guy. He's the non-Berkey guy. Why would you go to the non-Berkey guy to get your Berkey? In all seriousness, Jeff is a maniac when it comes to customer service. He's going to make sure that you're happy and satisfied. He's going to make sure that your order gets handled right. He's one of the largest dealers in the world for Berkey, and that means he has some of the most aggressive and competitive pricing out there. And, hey, he's not just the Berkey guy. He's a good preparedness guy, too. He's got a lot of other great stuff. But I'm telling you, if you need filters for your Berkey, if you need a Berkey system because you haven't got one yet, get on over to Directive21.com. That Again, that is Directive and the number 21.com and see Jeff. And if you have any questions, call him up. He or one of his folks will answer the phone. They will take care of you and help you get exactly what you need. Don't be the guy that got his Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could have went to the Berkey guy. Come on. Next up today, the Free State Project where you can vote with your feet. 
You know, I've kicked off an initiative called Walking to Freedom. I'm not going to talk about it in the housekeeping uh, because I have a phone call on it uh, later in the show today. But I will tell you this. The concept of a republic is that one state behaves stupidly for a long period of time, New Jersey, and uh, continues to oppress and overtax its people, California, and continues to not balance its checkbook, oppress, tax, Illinois, California, New Jersey, New York. Okay, you get it? Uh, when one state does that long enough, the people in a republic have freedom of movement, And they pick up and they go somewhere better. One of the best places you can choose to move within this republic is New Hampshire, where they're fighting for liberty with the Free State Project. The final act in a republic of voting is not at the ballot box. It's voting with your feet. When you're not treated right, go somewhere that you will be. And if you go to New Hampshire, one thing I can tell you have there is a community of several thousand people trying to build it up to 20,000 people to make liberty in our lifetime a reality. Check them out today at freestateproject.org. Okay, next up, I um, want to remind you guys about the, uh, the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you help support this show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode, but it's on sale this week, and it will run through Sunday. You can use discount code MOTHEREARTH, all one word, all lowercase, and get $10 off your first year. If you're renewing by mail or paying by mail, write it on the form, and we can do it that way. If you pay automatically online by PayPal and you have automatic renewals or you have an active subscription, I can't give you the renewal at the sales price. It doesn't work. It's a PayPal thing. It's not me. I'm not Verizon saying new customers only. But I do want you guys to know there is a sale out right now. And I want you to realize that you get a lot out of the member support brigade. The discounts will pay for the membership if you buy things in the preparedness uh, and self-sufficiency realm. Absolutely. Uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service as always. I have a discount for you. It's better than the sale. It's always available. Email me, jack at the survival podcast.com. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And, uh, and I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service. I also extend this to first responders such as paramedics. Okay, with that wrapped up, let's get into the main topics of today's show. Again, usually I would lead off with calls and do all calls today, but And I only understand something, guys, because I get a lot of emails about different people being picked on by city, state, county governments, specifically with gardens and urban and rural and semi-rural farming issues, and I can't take them all on. What I try to do when I find an issue to take on, like we do with Jan Klein in Salem, Oregon, uh, is to look for the ones that we can have the biggest impact with, where we can help the person But we can also send a message, not just to the people that are at fault, the people that are oppressing that person, but to townships, to cities, to counties, to communities, to, to states, all throughout the nation, that you never know when a community, or specifically this community, is going to say, you know what, not this time, not this place, we're going to shove it up your ass. I found one. This came into me yesterday. Um, there's a little group, little group up in, uh, a, a town that is, uh, actually I think it's a township that's causing the problem anyway. It's Williams Township in, uh, Michigan. I first heard about them in the, uh, Lansing Journal, uh, an article that went out on February 22nd, 2013. It just came to my attention yesterday. And, um, It sounded like basically all that she really needed was $500 for some sort of a zoning amendment, but it turns out that's not guaranteed. I was just going to give her $500 bucks and say anybody that wanted to help could help. Um, but apparently they're in for a fight, and I'm going to read the whole story to you. Uh, but 
they're trying to raise $20,000 for legal defense fund now so that they can basically stand under uh, the Right to Farm Act and tell this township basically to go blow. Let me read you her story. This is uh, on her blog. Uh, it's called Sweet Peas Farm. It's on sweetpeasfarm.webs.com. I'll have a link in today's show notes. I'd just like you to hear the story in her own words. In the summer of 2012, we'd been looking for our dream house for over a year. Our idea of a dream house was different than most others. We wanted a small walkout ranch in the country. We wanted backup heat source, uh, southern exposure, and excellent insulation to reduce our dependency on outside energy sources. We wanted a few acres with lots of trees for privacy, but plenty of unmanicured grass for pasture. Does that sound, I'm going to break away for a second. Does that sound familiar to any of you? How many of us want the same thing and are working for it? How many of us have gotten there? How many people in this community, this is exactly what you're trying to do. Keep that in mind as you hear what's going on. You see, we wanted a homestead. We wanted to have a few goats for milk, some pigs for healthy pork, and some chickens for soy-free eggs. Why would this matter? Well, our five, six children, of course. Our children have a plethora of allergies, but most problematic are their food allergies. What a surprise. Five years ago, when I discovered the extent of their food restrictions, I was brought to my knees. I'd lived two straight months on literally nothing but chicken breast and butternut squash, day in and day out. Chicken, squash, salt, pepper, and water. Really try to imagine that. It's called a total elimination diet. Originally, this allows around 10 foods, but that this wasn't enough for my baby. He had restrictions to even the least allergenic foods like rice. I had to throw it all out. I did this so that my nursing baby could not only survive, but finally begin to thrive. He'd been screaming and sleeping no more than 15 minutes at a time, experienced rashes, diarrhea, diaper rash, not gaining weight, not growing, uh, not throwing, not growing, throwing up, and throwing up and throwing up, and then I mentioned screaming and the missed sleep. I lost 60 pounds in two months. The malnutrition and screaming baby put me through more than any other challenge in my life. Around eight months of age, when I worked out the 14 foods and additives which he reacted through my breast milk, it got a little easier. He slept, his rashes cleared, and he grew. It was wonderful, but the biggest lesson that taught me was that my, that my other children and even I had reactions to the same foods. Because of this, I had to make everything that went into our mouths from scratch. Nothing could come from a box or a bag. It all had dairy, soy, corn in it. And he was allergic to eggs and couldn't have store-bought meats due to allergenic contamination. And I learned something interesting. When a chicken is fed soy, the soy is detectable in its eggs. An individual could be allergic to the soy in the eggs rather than the eggs themselves. And an animal's food can cause you to react when you drink its milk or eat its meat the same way in which allergens have been made my baby react through my breast milk. These revelations rocked my world. Uh, we might be able to get some foods back if only the animals were fed right. Gee, this sounds like stuff Jack talks to you guys about all the time and the problems in our food system. So I spent the next three years trying to find anyone that fed their animals, quote, right, unquote. Unfortunately, you can't find it here. I did find soy-free eggs in Colorado at $10 a dozen plus shipping, and there's just no way we had to do it ourselves. We came, we want to, we came to want to do it ourselves. After three accepted offers that went south, we found our house. We put in an offer, and I went home to call the township and make sure that our homesteading plans would be good to go in the area. Okay, listen, this is important. She made, it's not like she didn't try to do this right. I was told that if we wanted large animals, we would need more than two acres. A horse required at least five. I hung up the phone, thrilled. The process this time went off without a hitch. In just a month, we were signing on the dotted line. We moved in on August 16, 2012. That week, I brought home two pot-bellied pig. Pastured port is extremely nutritious. 
uh, when they're not fed soy and corn. It can be very healthy for allergic kids. Two weeks later, our shed was delivered, built and filled with eight chickens, soy and corn-free eggs. None of us reacted to eggs for the first time. In early October, we got three goats. Goat milk was within sight. We're excited to say goodbye to $8 a gallon sheep milk bill, plus the hour-long drive to get it. We were on cloud nine. The kids and I worked together to build pens, build houses from free pallets, be chicken feeders and rabbit tractors. We hauled hundreds upon hundreds of pounds of hand straw. We had a blast. The revolution is you, someone living the dream, doing it because it's the right thing for them and their family. But then a bitchy neighbor and government get together and send out the department of making you sad. This is where the story turns the corner. In November, we got a certified letter. It was from the township. We were in violation of township zoning ordinances, which stated that the farm animals were not allowed in our zone. We had to remove the farm animals within 10 days. Needless to say, I was more than a little confused. I went to talk to someone in the office. Surely this was a mistake. The meeting went like this. Nope, farm animals are not allowed. No, it's impossible that you cleared it before buying the houses. Nobody would have told you the farm animals were allowed here. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't matter that pot-bellied pigs are considered pets or that your children are allergic or many goats are considered pets in many parts of the country. There are farm animals that must be removed. Oh, your children are in 4-H? Oh, just write us a letter that says that with a timeline for the 4-H projects, and it should be fine. Wow, that was easy. So I wrote a letter, okay? So this is the second time a word gets broke. I just want you guys to see this. Wow, that was easy, so I wrote a letter and hand-delivered it. I was met by the township supervisor who told me that I'd been mistakenly informed by the township representative the week before. In other words, their word is broken again. Like I said, even if they are used for 4-H, fire animals are not allowed and must be removed. What? You mean someone in your office got it wrong? I would have put again in there, but who am I to change her writing? But I was told the last time that was impossible. It was impossible for him to get around. Uh, I, I was then invited to come to the next township board meeting. At that meeting, I request the board meet with the planning committee again regarding the zoning in our area and change things. You see, the city of Williamston, just three lots to the south of us, had changed its ordinances to allow any farm animals, including ostriches, cows, and even horses, being that agricultural zoning begins not even a half a mile to the north of us as well. They would have to be crazy not to visit revisit their plan, right? So I did some hard work. I wrote a letter outlining the extent of my children's allergies and just what I was looking for them to do, simply having a meeting and change some words on some papers. I spoke with each of my neighbors and asked them to sign a letter that said they did not object to my family having farm animals. I showed them our plan with specific numbers of each animal, no rooster, for instance, the length of time the animal would be where our plans uh, to be uh, G-A-A-M-P compliant, Etc. I included all of this info with my letter to the board. I included a copy of the new city ordinance, information about Lansing's efforts to allow urban goats in densely populated areas and other cities such as Denver that had allowed such a thing and flourished for it. I bombarded them with information. Through my jitters, I attended the board meeting. I was asked to speak. I said my piece after a short discussion among themselves. They decided my case was not worth their time. You know what? You guys are going to wish you didn't do that. I'm telling you right now. I'm telling you, you folks in this town, you have got the wrong uh, southern Texas redneck pissed off right now. And, and I know that people up in Michigan in a little town like this that have your little fiefdom don't think that I have any business in your, your, your business, but you picked on somebody trying to do what's right for themselves and their family. So guess what? We're coming. We're coming. 
At this point, I felt I had no choice. I contacted Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. This organization defends the rights of small farms. I needed them to do this for me. Mr. Pete Kennedy spoke with me at length and described to me the Butchler case. They had just won in Upper Peninsula of Michigan. It was nearly identical to mine. Essentially, if you're a farm, commercial in nature, meaning you sell something, anything such as eggs or rabbits, or intend to do so, as is evident from signage or Internet ads like those for our rabbits, you are protected by the Right to Form Act which supersedes local zoning ordinances. We were protected, so Pete sent a letter to the township informing them of such, along with a case law set by the Marquette family that had just spent years fighting the township. Williamette Township still refused to budge. Oh, are you guys going to pay? Oh, are you guys going to... I... 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 You know what? Let me, let me just, the rest of the article you can read yourself. Basically, she's trying to raise money because they're not budging... And they're telling her there's nothing she can do about it. Um, well, what she did about it was stand up and fight. And now all I'm asking fellow members of this community is that we do what we said we would do. Remember, every citizen a sentinel. Not every citizen can be a soldier in the republic, but every citizen can stand watch over your fellow citizens. It's time to rise. It's time to stand watch. And it's time to make these people who think they have the right to tell another person how to live, who's done everything she can to comply with the system, who was told it was okay before she spent the money to buy her house, who's not living on a third of an acre surrounded by people who don't want this type of thing there, who's got three acres, and if you look up her address on Google Maps, you're going to realize that somebody needs to be punched in the throat over this. I'm stealing that from a commenter on Facebook, by the way, who's dead on with it. And it just basically said, we don't care that there's already been a case in, in our state that said you're allowed to do this. It said what we're doing is wrong. We don't care. We're going to do whatever we want, and you're going to suffer for it, and we don't care if you don't like it. We're sympathetic to you, but tough shit. That's the response. Okay. Then what I'm going to ask you to do, whether it's five bucks, 50 bucks, or 500 bucks, whatever works for you, let's take this fight to them. Let's take this fight to these people. Well, I don't need to be on national radio. I'm just some idiot with a microphone sitting in Hazel, Texas. Right? Just some stupid Texas redneck with some survival podcast thing. We don't care about that mission. You're going to. Oh, you're going to. And you're not going to care because it's me. You're going to care because there's 65,000 people out there who feel this way. And I don't know if all 65,000 of the people in the audience feel this way, but I bet you there's a couple hundred or a couple thousand. They'll say, I'd throw five bucks in. I'd throw ten bucks in. I bet some of you guys that have come through and things like this before uh, with larger donations are going to do it now. And I appreciate you for that. I think this is something you should tell your friends and neighbors about. I think that anybody, this is the key. If this is your dream, if this is what you want, If you feel like one day I want that little homestead somewhere, or if you already have it, if you let anybody take it away from anybody, then they can come take it from you. No, not on my watch, not now, not this damn time. This one is going right up the ass of what is it, Williams Township or Williams? I don't care. Whoever the hell you are, you are about to get nailed dead square between the eyes And none of you may ever listen to this, but you're going to hear it one way or another. I've already told this lady, go out and find a really good lawyer who's good at this. You're going to be able to afford it. 
Don't let me down, guys. Let's make this happen. And folks, I have a bigger plan. I have a much bigger plan here. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that this township, if they hear from a couple hundred, couple thousand people in the next week saying, oh, you know what I just did? I just funded a legal defense fund for this lady. I'm paying attention to this case. And if, if, it's, if there's more needed, I, I might be coming back with some more. You don't have to tell them how much. You, know, you don't have to tell them what your limits are. Just, just, just let them know, hey, you know what? I know what you're doing. I'm paying attention. By the way, I'm clear across the country. I'm a person you didn't think you had to worry about. But I'm funding this woman because of what you are doing. That maybe they'll say, you know what? Maybe we'll go ahead and just change that freaking ordinance and leave this lady alone. And I already thought, well, what if we did that? What if we did that? If we did that, then this $20,000 that she raises or whatever she raises wouldn't be needed for her case. So I sent her an email, as I mentioned earlier, and said, why don't you do this? Why don't you pledge that the money, if you don't use it, because they back down when they see this, when someone else has a fight like this, you'll set it aside and you'll use it to fund them. You'll pass it on. You'll be a good steward. If I ask my community to step up and back you, and you have to take this and fight it, you'll make it bigger than yourself. And if they back down, you'll still make it bigger for yourself because you'll pass it on to the next person that needs it. Well, while I was doing this rant, I got an email. Here's a response. Yes, that's exactly what I thought. If I end up not needing the money, I would happily use it to help others with this exact same problem. Yes, here's all their contact info. They tried to tell me at the last meeting they've had just as many calls to tell them thank you for upholding the zoning as they've had in support for us. Doubtful, but now it will be very doubtful. Let's make it very doubtful. So I'm not going to read the names of these people on the air. I'm going to publish uh, the exact information. There's a phone number, there's a supervisor, a clerk, a treasurer, all their email addresses. I'd like you guys to do this. When you donate, either call or email or both, and simply say, I heard about what's going on. Not only am I supporting um, this, this, this woman that you're oppressing, and um, not only am I going to continue to support them if necessary, um, but I wanted you to know that. Uh, that's all I think we really need to do. See, what she said is there were calls supporting her and calls not supporting her. I think you need to let these folks know that you're financially supporting her legal efforts against them. You know what? If they get a couple hundred phone calls and start doing so, because even, even a bureaucrat can do some math. Even a bureaucrat, because see, they're good at it, because taxes, they go, we got 2,000 people over there, and if we, we just raise the tax rate a quarter of a point, we get all of this money. So they know how to do that. They know their paychecks are tight. So they understand the power of a little bit in large numbers. Put them in touch with it. This woman's name, by the way, is Jessica Hudson. That's who we're backing here. So make sure you let them know that we are aware. This is, and I want you to be respectful. I don't want you to be mean. I don't want you to be loud. I don't want you to be obnoxious. An email might go something like this. Dear sirs and ma'ams, because there's a, a list here of people if you want to send it to them all, and some are men and some are women. I have become aware, I have become aware of your attempt to force Miss Hudson to remove her animals from her three acre rural property due to an existing ordinance and your unwillingness to abide by Michigan State Law. I find this completely unacceptable, and therefore I am backing Ms. Hudson with a financial contribution to her legal defense fund. 
Respectfully, I submit that if she needs more money, I'll be back with more money. I am committed to making sure that you lose this fight. And then append this if you're not from Michigan. By the way, I'd like you to know I'm not even from Michigan. I'm from fill in the blank with your state. But I believe that a fight for liberty somewhere is a fight for liberty everywhere. And I believe that you're stepping on and oppressing liberty. So I have made it part my commitment to ensure that you lose this fight. Again, I want you to know that if I have to come back and do more, I am more than willing to do so. Please take this matter into consideration. I think it would be easier for you to resolve this issue by simply allowing this woman to do what your officials told her was completely acceptable before she committed to purchasing the home than to fight a legal case that case law already says you're going to lose. But if you wish to fight, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I look forward to myself and the fellow members of my community winning the case and making a statement that's bigger than you, that's bigger than Ms. Hudson, that says to all people such as yourselves that think you can step on the throats of other individuals because you have a token amount of power, not today, not this time, perhaps not ever. Thank you. Respectively submitted your name. Something like that. Uh, you might make a phone call and be a little bit more brief. Uh, write it your own way with your own words. I'm just trying to give you the tone. I don't want you to email us, you're a bunch of jerks, you're a bunch of assholes, and I'm going to kick you. No, don't do that. That's stupid. That doesn't, that doesn't help. I mean, you might think it. Don't say it. Be respectful and just let them know, hey, you know what? She's not alone. Doesn't it feel good to be part of something like that? To be able to simply say, they're not alone. And let me tell you something, folks. It doesn't have to be big donations. I appreciate appreciate it. I'm sure Jessica will appreciate it. Five bucks, ten bucks. One, one meal not out in the next couple weeks to lay down a fight for liberty. I don't often ask you guys to do this because I don't want to abuse the leverage and the trust, but I'm asking you to do it today. I'd appreciate your help. I know Ms. Hudson would appreciate your help. I know her children would appreciate your help. And I know this. All of her neighbors signed off on this. Her neighbors would appreciate your help. Let's let them know they're not alone. And let's let the bureaucrats of Williams Township, Michigan, know that those folks aren't alone. And let's let them know that they can't get away with something just because somebody gave them a little token amount of power. And with that, let's go ahead and finally take your first call. Hey, Jack. This is Andy in Tucson, soon to be Andy from Kentucky. I just had two quick comments to make on your Walking to Freedom project. Since moving randomly across the country is actually something I have a decent amount of experience with. Um, definitely spend as much time as possible in the area where you're going to be living, weeks for sure, months if you can. Uh, and second, don't forget to weigh in the consideration of family, especially if you're married. Family might be more important to the spouse than it is to you. Uh, these are both points that I've heard you make on the show before, but I figured some second voice validation might be helpful. Uh, we actually moved from Pittsburgh to Tucson about five years ago, and on paper, everything looks better, gun laws are better, taxes were lower at the time, business was better here, although it's not anymore. Um, after living here for five years, we are really unhappy. Uh, you know, the summer is horrible. You can't grow anything. The city's always under construction. Taxes have gone up. You know, had we spent some more time here before we moved, uh, we might have been able to avoid about five years worth of uh, 
uh, wasted time here. Uh, and then the other consideration is family. Uh, as we were getting ready to leave Tucson, we took a, took a look around the country, uh, and the wife really wanted to be back near her family. Uh, she's got some grandparents that are getting up into their 80s in Kentucky, and they're not getting the care they need. And we can move there and provide that care for them, and we're, we're lucky that we're in that kind of position where we can do that. Um, just something to, to keep in mind when people are looking to move. Uh, Kentucky's the right state for me right now. It's probably not the right state for everyone. It might not even be the right state for us in five years, but you know, I've seen people already trying to turn the perfect state into some kind of math equation and figure out where would be the best place to live without spending the time for it. And the right solution isn't right for everybody. It's very much dependent on who you are. I know these are things you've brought up on the show a couple of times, but uh, having a decent amount of experience living in different places across the country, I figured some second voice validation would uh, help people from making some mistakes. The right place is very, very personal. So thanks for the show. Thanks for everything you do. And uh, look forward to listening. Have a great day. I think that's great advice, and I want to keep you guys updated on Walking the Freedom, so it gave me an excuse to do that, so that made it even easier uh, for me to uh, to play on the air today. And we are doing well. Quick update on the number of people who have joined the Walking the Freedom Forum, 449 members in less than three weeks. That's a, a hell of a way to get a forum off the ground, especially when there's only two boards there, and we're in kind of a pre-beta mode before we really get into the meat and potatoes of things. All we're doing right now is establishing the naughty list. Uh, so if you haven't joined yet, remember, you don't have to want to move. You just want to have to help and be part of this and be part of the democratic process with disapproval voting to name the naughty list of the five worst states. Michigan probably just got themselves a couple more votes, uh, but I don't think they'll make the top five. I don't even know if they'll make the naughty list. We're not even sure how many people are going to be on it. We know there'll be at least five. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about what the uh, what the caller said and expound on a little bit. Um, number one, I think if you're thinking of moving anywhere, whether it's for walking to freedom because you want more liberty or just because you want to be somewhere else, uh, just because you're looking for something different, um, I, I can't overemphasize how important it is that you should go there and spend some time there first, as much time as possible, uh, and make coming back or going somewhere else as easy as possible when you first land in a place, unless you're absolutely sure. Uh, that means it's probably smarter to rent than buy when you move somewhere. Um, with a caveat there, you have to really think about that. A lot of times when you move, that means taking a new job. And even if you've had a long-term job history, it might make it harder to get a mortgage to buy. So a lot of times, this is stupid. I know it's, it's just completely moronic. But if you have a job in Philadelphia and you decide to move to Dallas and you apply for your mortgage while you have your job in Philadelphia, even though the, the lender has to know in their head that you are going to leave that job because you're not going to work in Philadelphia from Dallas, very few people do that anyway, uh, they'll give you the mortgage. But if you've moved to Dallas, somebody's already given you a job where you've landed, you're already employed, sometimes it's, 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 it's difficult to get a job even or a mortgage even if everything else lines up. Sometimes it's not. It all depends on the lender, the property, the price, your credit history, all that stuff. So there is something to think about there. But I do think it's important that we get our heads around what we're doing here with Walking to Freedom. We're trying to actually accommodate a lot of the concerns that the caller brought up. 
it's fine to say, well, look at all that New Hampshire has with the Free State Project. But some people are going to look at New Hampshire and go, not even politically, they're just going to go, it's cold there. I don't like it being cold. I want a beach where I can get a suntan, not freeze my butt off. And they're going to want to go to someplace like Florida or Texas. We have great coasts in Texas, believe it or not. A lot of people won't think Texas is a beach state. But we've got a lot going for us there. Or Georgia has beautiful beaches, and the Carolinas have beautiful beaches. So maybe that's what's important to somebody else. Maybe you you have family that you want to stay close to, even if it means going across the state line. So people that have family in New Jersey might say, you know what, is Pennsylvania is not the bastion of liberty in the United States, but God, you know, driving across the Delaware River is not a big deal. And if you live in New Jersey and I live in Pennsylvania, we can see each other, especially if I choose Eastern PA, just about any time we want to. So it's important that people have the ability to make the statement of leaving these states and yet choose the best match for them. And I'm agreeing with the caller 100%. I mean, it's fine. We have some lists and some statistics and stuff that we look at. Folks, that's a starting point. That's so that you can say, you know what, these three issues are really important to me, and I want to find the states that seem to be on the right side of those three issues. But you might find another state that's pretty close. It's not exact, and most of it's never going to be exactly what you would want. But you go, they're close enough, and I can live and do the things that I want to do there, and I'm going to get along better with my neighbors there. It's really important that you make a deep, considered uh, choice when you move, even within the same state, about the community and the place that you choose. You do your best to vet whether or not you're going to be able to do what you want to do. Now, we can see that Jessica Hudson tried to do that, but gee, a bureaucrat lied. So let me give you another piece of advice when it comes to moving anywhere. When you make a phone call to a city, a township, or something like that, ask for it in writing when they tell you it's okay, or ask where it specifically says in their charter or their ordinances or whatever that it's acceptable. Uh, make sure that they provide you with that and get the name of the person that did it Uh, the date and the time, uh, it may give you more to stand on if they break their word, because we all know that bureaucrats break their word. In fact, let me tell you what happens a lot of times. They don't even break their word. The bureaucrat changes. New bureaucrat interprets the same language differently and says, I am chief bureaucrat here. I can do whatever I want. Try to minimize that from the beginning, and that's why I'm a big fan of, I don't say live far, far away in the middle of nowhere, but unincorporated areas and things like that. Change a lot of things. Uh, when we were looking for our house, I had to kind of push our real estate agent back to reality a couple times. She said, oh, you don't want to live there. Some of the neighbors look trashy. Trashy. Define trashy for me. Well, they have a, you know, a tree growing through the roof of their house. Yeah, that's trashy. You know, or, well, the guy's a truck driver and he has a couple trailers sitting around in his yard all the time. Uh, that's not trashy. That's, that's, that's not, see, you gotta come, cause she lives in an HOA and everything's pretty and she thinks like a typical real estate agent does. That's not, what that means is that he's allowed to do that and nobody freaking bothers him. Well, the neighbors have cows. Well, that's good since I want chickens. Right, So it's important that you find an area where people are already doing, by and large, what you want to do as well if you have a dream of a homestead or anything that you want to do with your property and you want it to be part of moving towards more liberty. So, again, get on over to walkingtofreedom.com, participate, help others make this decision if you're not doing it for yourself, and find the right place for you, find the right match for you, but please do go there first and spend some time there. That's the whole point of Walking to Freedom, by the way. 
I want people that are saying, like, I want to go to, to Georgia, and I'm interested in the kind of the rural area and the mountains. Georgia has mountains, believe it or not. You get up in the northwest corner, and I want to go there. And I want somebody from that area to go, hey, let's make sure you're not an axe murderer or something first. But then, hey, you know what? Why don't you come out? We'll give you dinner at our house. We'll show you around. We'll t t introduce you to some people to actually make those visits easier. And have people showing up already having friends and already being part of a community. If church is important to you, then I want you to be able to find, you know, visit a church that would be, you know, if you're Methodist and there's one Methodist church in town, go there and meet the people and see what it's like. You know, if you're not in a church or if you're in the gun clubs, then be able to find a gun club or a social center or an Elks Lodge, whatever it is for you, to be able to actually go and see and be part of it. That's the real vision of walking to freedom. Not just taking the best people away from the worst places, but making sure that they go to the best place for themselves. Great call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Brandon with LibertyBudget.com. I'm calling because um, I've always heard that um, you can save the eggshells and do something with them. I've done that. What can I do with the eggshells? Um, can I compost them? Uh, I know they're a good source of calcium, but I just finished up frying some uh, eggs to save money on eating out and uh, make breakfast at home, and I've got a whole carton of 18 eggshells here, and I don't know what to do with them. Can you let me know what to do with them? Thanks a lot. All right, love the show. Talk to you later. Bye. Yeah, I can give you quite a few different things you can do with eggshells as far as agricultural use. I don't think you have chickens based on the way you ask the question, but if you did, you can take a bunch of your eggshells, crush them up in a little bitty bits, and feed them back to your chickens. And someone will say, that'll teach them to eat eggs. No, actually, it'll keep them from eating eggs because if they're not calcium deficient, they're not going to feel a need to eat their own eggs. I've seen plenty of times where people have a chicken has a problem with being an egg eater, and it's usually because the chicken is nutritionally deficient in some way. Um, and also, a chicken knows the difference between an egg it just laid and a bunch of shells crushed up in a little bitty pile on the ground. So one thing you can do is feed eggs back to your chicken and rest assured, if anything, since it's supplying them the calcium, minerals, and nutrients that they need to produce eggs, since it is an egg, it has what an egg needs, it will actually make them less likely to have a problem with eating eggs. And if you have an egg-eating chicken, eat the chicken and get a new chicken. That's a very simple way to handle that problem. And if you do that for a while, you'll end up with natural selection and you won't have chicken. Chickens that eat eggs. And again, if anything, feeding them the eggs will make them less likely to eat it. Yes, you can compost it. You can either just basically toss them in the compost bin in halves, or you can crush them up a little bit when you do. Um, you can also do what I call on-the-fly composting with chicken eggs, which is, and I prefer to crush them up quite a bit for this, but there's some half-egg shells out in my garden right now that I'm not worried about. They'll break down in time. Uh, you just pull up your mulch layer and, and sprinkle them underneath there and lay the mulch layer back down on it and let nature take its course. So they don't have to go through conventional composting uh, for that to happen. If you practice vermicomposting, which is composting with worms, it makes a lot of sense to really grind them up pretty good. You can even throw them in a blender for this and make them a little bit closer to a powdered form, but to sprinkle it on top of your worm beds and let your worm beds take it from there. And the worms will make that calcium extremely bioavailable in the castings that they produce, and it will be outstanding for that. The most creative thing that I've ever seen anybody do with an eggshell, though, and you have to open them a certain way to do this, you kind of crack the top off and leave them like a little cup, is use them to start seeds in. You crack the top off, leave it like a little cup, use a pin to make a pinhole in the bottom for drainage, fill them with potting soil, and start seeds in them. 
Then when you go to plant your plant, you just take the eggshell and kind of crack it up a little bit so that the roots can get out of it and plant the whole damn thing into the ground. And you're, you're, you're putting calcium into the ground. You're putting calcium right at the root system. And you're using the, 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 the product to provide another need and another function. It takes a little bit of skill to crack the eggshells that way. I'll post a link on some more information about all of these things with eggshells in today's show notes for you. But there you go. There's some uses for eggshells other than just composting them. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, what's going on? I got a question about time management for the prepper. And uh, first off, just a question to you, how do you have time for it all? Um, the large question is how does anybody have time for it all, especially if you're trying to keep your life uh, going, your regular life, your regular job. Meanwhile, homesteading, prepping, trying to, you know, grow your own food and um, do all the things that it takes to, to be uh, self-reliant. And then just specifically for you, how, you know, I know you, you put out a show every day of the week for the most part. And, uh, you know, also I don't know what your, what your preps are looking like around your house, but, you know, you've got a lot of work, obviously, to do at your new place. You know, describe your average day and, and uh, how do you manage the time to answer all the emails to or, you know, go through all the calls and then interview the guests and make it all happen. Just really curious about about the time management aspect. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon, hopefully. Well, um, I'd love to tell you that I'm a time management guru, and I'll give you my entire time management system in a couple of phrases. One, I work my ass off, period. Two, if I want to do something, I just try it. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it unless it's going to be something dangerous or a major life-altering event. If I think a garden bed will look somewhere, I get a shovel and start digging it. If it doesn't work out, I can always move it. If I made it with a shovel, I can move it with a shovel, and I treat most things in life that way. I came away from the military with an understanding of leadership that works this way. People that follow you do not follow you so that when you have a choice between doing something and nothing, that you will choose nothing. They follow you because they believe you have the wisdom and the will to do something. So when I am faced with the choice of doing something or nothing, I always choose to do something. And I realized that as a leader, it's not just about leading others, but leading myself in my own life. And I have to take that principle to, to task on myself. I am not highly organized. I do not have, and I have quite a few questions like, you know, do you use so-and-so's time management system? I think it takes more time to use a time management system that you could spend actually getting things done, uh, than to, than to, you know, worry about whose time management system is best. Um, a lot of stuff doesn't get done. A lot of stuff that I want to get done doesn't get done, but the reality is by taking that approach, a shitload of stuff gets done. I also think it's really important, especially as preppers, that we understand that this is a marathon, not a sprint. So that's why we have to eat the elephant one bite at a time. So, you know, it's so much work to grow your own food, but it's really not. It's a ton of work to establish the system, and it's a bit of maintenance to keep it going. Um, it's a ton of work to get that first 30 days worth of a food supply stored up, but once you do it, you go back to pretty much business as usual unless you want to go more than 30 days. And then you just do what you already did and you're at 60 and you do what you already did and you're at 90. And frankly, for many of us, 90 days is good enough. I am more of the inclined to get to a year eventually type of guidance to you. But I'll tell you what, if every American had a 90-day supply, we would circumvent 99.999% of any disaster that could ever happen in relationship to feeding ourselves. Specifically, mundane stuff like job losses. 90 days of food goes a long way taking one thing 
off of the table that you have to worry about so you can focus on the important thing of finding a job. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I had a question just the other day and it's part of why I put this call in here. Do you, and I don't remember who it was, but it was like, do you use X time management system or Y management system? And if you don't use either one of those, which one do you use and why? I'm like, I sent back an email to that guy and said, my entire time management system can be summed up as working my ass off. And I thought this was a good uh, opportunity to expand on it a little bit. But I'll tell you what, you shouldn't be impressed that I put out five shows a week right now. I, I'm really, actually not that impressed with myself because I can put out five shows a week. It's my job. It's what I do full time. It makes me wonder, though, with as much work as goes into this show, how the hell I ever did it when it wasn't my full-time job, when it was something I did at night and in the mornings in my car. Um, it almost seems to me like, well, if you had to go back and do that again, could you? And the only reason I know I can say yes is because I did it. That's that's the only reason I know I can say yes is because I've done it before, so I know I can. It seems almost undoable now. So what made it what made it happen? I wanted it. You can accomplish the things you really want the most, and I think that the biggest thing you can do to your, for yourself is whenever you have a moment to do something, whether you're planning it for next week or you just have a free hour today. Say, which one thing that I can do now or I can do then is going to put me closer to what I want? Not, I most feel like it's fun or whatever, but which one thing is going to get me closer? And you'll start to head in the right direction. And it's funny. It's a lot like paying debt off with the snowball. You first start trying to devalue your debt and get rid of it. It's very, very difficult. And you go for maybe a couple months and you feel like you're not getting anywhere. And in three or four months you feel like you're not getting anywhere. And four or five months in you pay off that first smallest debt. And then you take all that money and you compound it onto your next debt in size. And it gets, it speeds up. And when you get to the last debt, the biggest one that you thought would be impossible, it's like, and it's gone. That's a lot of how getting into self-sufficient lifestyle is. It's hard. It's a little easier, a little easier. And then it starts to roll. Because all the work you did starts to pay dividends, right? So the money you're trying to free up when you're building the garden and you're investing in the materials that you need is not there because you're spending it, right? But then when the food starts coming in, well, now I don't have to go buy broccoli. I don't have to go buy peppers. I don't have to go buy jalapenos. I don't have to go buy tomatoes. I don't have to go buy herbs. I don't have to do all that. I get some chickens. I don't have to buy eggs anymore. Uh, even if I start using even just a dozen chickens a year, that's a dozen chickens I didn't have to buy. Even if I was buying cheap chickens, that's 60 bucks. 60 bucks is 60 bucks I didn't have. I start to actually enjoy myself. I actually, because I'm enjoying myself, because I'm being fulfilled, then I'm less likely to go out and spend money on things I don't really need where I'm trying to fill that hole and it builds up. And you just have to trust the system that if you work the system, it'll happen that way. And that'll give you the courage and the wherewithal you need early on so that you can get past that midpoint over that hump and get into where you're actually beginning to coast. And then you can really pick up steam. And you have to do it with the same faith that you would build a fire. When you build a fire, you start out with little bits of tinder and twigs and sticks and leaves and little bits of dry stuff. And you know you want this big roaring fire. And it seems ridiculous that this little pile of tinder is going to turn into a fire with big logs the size of your arm on it. But you trust the system. You know how it works. You know the design. You know how air flows. You know what fire needs, oxygen and fuel in the right ratios and mix. And you know you need to get it hot and you need to get a bed of coals underneath it. And then you can build it up. And you trust that system and you end up with a fire. When it comes to self-sufficiency, the system is start on the things where you're weakest and that you have the least enthusiasm about doing and get them done 
and keep working. Keep your head down and keep working, and the system will compound from there. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, just, uh, this is Eric um, at Madisonville, Kentucky. Uh, lifelong martial artist. Love the show you guys did today. Great work. I uh, got a couple of points uh, to make on that. Uh, I'm a lifelong martial artist, uh, currently a brown belt in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, and currently pursuing black belt in Krav Maga, as well as, you know, numerous other ranks. I hold rank in Judo, uh, Shonu Karate, uh, so did, you know, Filipino Arnese, as well as uh, many styles of Kung Fu Karate and things of that nature. Um, great episode, but, you know, the lifelong episodes, a lot of the stuff you see in the UFC you guys brought up, uh, that's not fighting. That's a sport. Uh, in my opinion, that's great stuff. It's fantastic. But the martial arts techniques that, that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and Krav Maga tend to focus on are what you were bringing up as real-world scenarios. You don't want to be caught rolling around on the ground if at all possible. But the techniques that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu teaches focuses on getting back to your feet. And only when we're on the ground, we focus on that uh, because we were forced into that scenario, not because we want to be there. Uh, we have to be there. So I just thought I'd bring that up. Uh, I don't know if you want to bring that up or not, but uh, hey, great show. I love it. Keep up the great work. Big fan. Thanks. Well, I certainly agree with everything that the caller said, and I don't want to revisit everything. I think I said my piece on, on martial arts for a while, and, and specifically some of the misleading attitude within the uh, mixed martial arts field that they're superior and better than everybody else and nothing else. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It really is that anybody, and it's not even about what's best in a etherical way, but the fact that anybody would tell anybody else what's best for them is just an elitist aspect whole attitude, honestly. Um, I tell you, in any walk of life that we discuss on the show, I tell you, like, here's my opinion, but in the end, you have to make your own choice. I won't tell you what's best for you. When somebody says, what's the best thing I should do? It's like, this is how you handle that situation if I, if it was me, but in the end, you got to make your own choice. And any major decision, and choosing how to spend a significant part of your life for many years is a significant decision, has to be made by the individual. I do want to clear something up, though, so that maybe I can make peace with some of the MMA assholes. Some of you guys are just jerks. And I want to make peace with you. I want to concede one thing for you guys. When it comes to sporting fighting, okay, so any kind of a sporting fight, whether it's uh, real wrestling, not WWE crap, you know, but real wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling, uh, whether it's jiu-jitsu, whether it's uh, judo, whether it's uh, kickboxing or bo regular boxing, when it comes down to it, the closest thing that's done in a sanctioned competition to a real street fight is MMA. If you want to say it's the, the best representation of a fight on the street, it absolutely is, with a caveat. still ain't close. It still isn't close. And this is the big thing that people just don't want to accept. And it's not that they don't know it or they, they don't understand it. They just don't want to accept it because they've convinced themselves that they're Mr. Bad Tough Ass, right? A MMA fight is two trained fighters in a similar weight class, right? They're in a weight class that, that unifies and rectifies things with rules, with a referee who will stop the fight when one fighter clearly has a victory. Okay, that's That's absolutely, absolutely nothing like four dudes kicking your head in on the floor of a bar that mean to kill you, which is something that happens to people. It doesn't happen every day, thankfully, but it happens. 
And if you walk around with the attitude of because I'm that guy that can get in that ring, I'm ready for that world. The reality that I hope people took away from everything that I've tried to explain about this subject is you're never ready for that world. All you can do is be as ready as possible, stay vigilant, stay alert. Situational awareness, contact, confrontation, de-escalation are your two biggest weapons in staying alive. Because proving who's tougher is just ridiculous, okay? And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to get an email today from some ass clown that's going to want to challenge me to an MMA fight and prove it. Shut up. Shut up. I mean, really. He's just an idiot. Because let's say I got in the ring and you beat me. So what? You know, you, 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 this is your sport. You do it every day and you beat me. So what? Let's say I beat you. So what? Because what you're going to do is turn around and tell me that somebody else could beat me. Well, I know that. You know, unless you're the champion of the world in the unlimited weight class, somebody else can beat you. That's, that's the whole point, is that there's always someone else who can beat you. But put two guys in a ring together and have the one guy beat the other guy five times in five fights doesn't mean that the, the, the guy that got beat couldn't walk up to the other guy in the street and take him out. Because in the ring, you know what's going to happen. You know the rules, you both agreed to be there, and there's no question in your mind what the other person's going to do and how the other person is going to do it. In fact, in most instances, with sophisticated fighting, you actually know your opponent. You've watched tapes of your opponent. You know what their, what their go-to moves are, what they prefer, whether they want to be on the ground or up off the ground, whether you want to be You have all this information. When you're looking eye-to-eye -eye with a stranger, you don't know. And you can pretend to be tough, and you can pretend that it doesn't matter, but the reality is what you don't know in that potential confrontation is your biggest enemy, and it can get you killed if you let your bravado override your brain. And many of these guys that are all keyed up all the time, really, really susceptible to that. And that's my bigger concern. If you want to be an idiot, I don't care. This is America. You're free to be an idiot. I will defend your right to be an idiot as long as you don't hurt anybody else. But I prefer that you don't let your idiocy get you or loved ones or other people hurt because of your bravado. Somebody posted a link when, um, when I, I told the story that I told last week about the Marine that got really done up hard at Fort Benning, Georgia during jump school. Ears torn up and everything and what it was like for him and how he survived it. And how he was lucky to have survived six guys trying to beat him to death. And he wasn't, and he was a tough guy. He was a good fighter. Um, but there was no way he could have won that fight, but he won the battle of survival. And this link was to a YouTube interview with some martial arts guy that calls himself the California kid and how he was over in, I don't know, Bali? Yeah, in Bali and some guy. And Bali was being a dick to him in a bar. So he gave him, this is his words, the universal signal for let's take this outside and settle it. And he ends up out there with about 12 guys trying to beat his ass to death. And he ends up throwing a couple guys around and then running away. And he, the guy said, well, how does this story compare? And I said, well, it compares in that the solution was eventually to run away. Where it doesn't compare is this guy was a moron. He's probably a great fire, but he's a moron. If you're in a foreign country... And you don't know shit from Adam, and there's nobody there, especially there's nobody, there was nobody there with this guy, obviously. He was by himself, right? He was probably picking up Balinese chicks or something like that, you know? And he upset somebody, 
and you're in that environment and you say, let's take it outside, you're a moron, right? Real world conflict is different than that. He's lucky the guy just didn't walk up behind him and put a knife in his, in his ribs before he took it outside. There's certain ways that you conduct yourself to avoid conflict. And if whatever art you're studying doesn't teach you that, you've got the wrong teacher. Because conflict, specifically conflict in the real world outside of the ring, should be avoided whenever possible because you don't know that you're going to win. And the bigger thing is you don't know what losing means until you've lost. Losing can mean you got your ass kicked and maybe you're okay with that. Losing could mean your children and your wife have no father. And if you're stupid enough to let your hormones, your testosterone, your bravado, and your bullshit override that reality, you might deserve what you get, but your loved ones don't. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. John in Kentucky. Um, I have a Hugo culture question for you. During the fall of 2011, uh, I got access to some free soil uh, and built uh, about 500 linear feet of five to six foot tall hugel beds on my property. Um, due to the drought uh, that was going on in the fall when I made the made the beds, I planted them in annual rye and white clover. And uh, because I had new wood, I let the beds sit through the summer of 2012, and they grew a pretty hardy crop of uh, white clover uh, during that summer. My question is. How would you deal with knocking back the white clover so as to be able to direct seed uh, into uh, some of the beds that I'm going to use for annual vegetable production? Uh, or should I just plan on using uh, transplants like you know, squash, tomatoes, etc. in there? Um, also, what uh, procedure would you use to direct seed into, the, into these large beds Would, it, would the philosophy just be a totally random polyculture of everything from lettuce to corn, uh, or would you somehow try and uh, divide that up a little bit more to make it work better? I uh, just don't have much experience with that. Um, and lastly, what uh, type of support species would you put in for the annuals? Uh, and I guess one other question. Um, some of the beds I'm looking at doing in perennials, like strawberries and raspberries, and I'm wondering what companion plants might work with them because they're generally pretty invasive uh, or pretty hardy at any rate. Thank you, and appreciate all you do. Take care. Thanks. Yeah, there's there's a problem a little bit. Um, not a huge one, but a problem. Um If you had emailed me or called me and I had gotten to your, and I can't get to everybody, and had I gotten to it and said, I'm planning on um, throwing some cover crop on a hugel bed that I'm not going to plant till next year, and uh, my plan is to use an annual grass and a perennial clover, I would have said, don't do that. Don't use a perennial clover because you're going to have the problem that you have now. Uh, I would have said use a legume, an annual winter kill legume or a summer kill legume. Like if you were doing it in the fall, you could have planted a winter pea. Uh, and by the time the heat comes around, whatever you don't yank out, cut down, cut back would be dead. So the first thing is don't use a hardy perennial as a cover crop in a place that you want to do annual cultivation. Okay, so But we, we didn't do that now, so what do we do? Well, the good news is since you built a hugel bed and you planted it with, with grass and clover, 
the soil likely did not compact very much at all, and you should be able to go in and pull most of it out. And that's where I was, and I would pull it out, and I'd, I'd flip it upside down so the roots don't make soil contact, and I'd leave it on top of the bed. There's your organic matter. I would probably find a local newspaper uh, company that does like a local paper or something like that and call them up and say, can I get a bunch of free newspaper? And I would go, even though it's 500 feet and it's going to be a lot of work, I would probably coat it with about at least a half inch of newspaper everywhere, and I would wet that newspaper down massively, and I would mulch over top of that. You could go through and just use a little weeding tool and some pulling and pull as much of that clover out as you can get and then mulch it really heavily and avoid the paper. Um, if it was a small amount of native weeds and stuff like that, it's probably good enough. But with planted clover, you may really need to do that. Now, the good news is you've put a bunch of nitrogen in there. Uh, and that's great. You've given a lot of nitrogen for that nitrogen sink that people think is a nitrogen sink. It's actually a nitrogen trap uh, in the Hugel culture structure for, for to offset some of that. And that's great. And you've got a bunch of organic matter, and that's great. It just would have been better if you had used an annual crop, or even if you wanted to use a clover, more of a biannual clover, a clover that if it doesn't reseed, it pretty much dies off. And then all you have to do is keep cutting it back, uh, and eventually it'll die off for you. White Dutch clover is is pretty tough to get completely rid of. Um, so one of the things that you will want to do when you get into your planting is you want to plant more than you think you have room for. You want to really polyculture the hell out of it. And as you see clover poke up through here and there, just yank it out. The good news, again, since you've built a bed like that, you should be able to very easily remove most of your weeds. If you can't remove it, remove the green part and keep giving advantage to the other species. As far as what to plant as a support species... I don't do a whole lot of perennials inside an annual bed. Annuals or annuals, perennials or perennials, unless it's going to eventually um, success into a perennial bed. Uh, so I might, like I have blackberries in a little 10-foot hugel bed right now, four of them. I'll probably put some annuals in there, but I know that in two seasons or so, there'll probably be no annuals in there. Or I do perennials that are very confined perennials, or I put them in a prison. So I've done bee balm in an annual bed, and what I did is I went to um, Home Depot, and they make this stuff that looks like wood, but it's peel-and-stick flooring, and it's pretty long and thin. They're about six inches wide, and I'd say they're about three feet long, and you put them down like plank flooring, peel-and-stick. And I got two of those and made two hoops and put them together, so I had a 12-inch deep Barrier, and they were like the reason I use those instead of something that's made to be a barrier is these things cost like fifty cents a piece or something like that, or a dollar a piece. I don't remember they were cheap, and I went, oh, that'll work. Um, and I just did the peel and stick thing so that they stuck together with their own peel and stick. And I put them in the ground. I planted the bee bomb in there, and that prevented uh, bee bombs like a, a mint, so it has running roots, and that prevented it from running, and it basically confined it. Um, it's pretty risky doing it with big bee bomb, uh, which is why I did it, and it wasn't that big a deal. I'm like, I'll dig it out if I have to. So. That's really where I would go, um, and I wouldn't do the prison system in a in a hugel bed. It kind of counteracts it. 
what you want to do is a lot of polyculture. So make sure that you're planting five, six, seven different species of annuals and plant them where they're going to do their best. So your taller plantings, if you have a small hugel bed, uh, you probably want, you know, like you're not talking about a big 70 degree angle step holster things. You're about a rounded or mounted or a flat bed, you know, more towards your center and top. And then your, your lower growing things that like the sun, whatever side's going to get more sun, most of the preponderance of those there and the stuff that gets a little bit more shade, the side that either gets late sun or only morning sun or something, put your shaded loving things, your things that could use a little bit of shade there and just kind of intermix that. And, and a lot of the, what you're asking about as far as support will take care of itself if there's enough variance in there. And don't sweat weeds, any of you guys, with, uh, with hugel beds or any, uh, garden. When I see weeds, I don't even worry. I just let them grow until they're like half run and yank them out and drop them right there. They're, they're mining nutrients. I just don't want them to go to seed. Now here's the good news. I'm gonna, well, you know what? I'm gonna save this because there's a question coming in just a bit that's gonna help answer like once you've eradicated the clover, how do you keep the weeds from coming back? And it's actually really, really easy. So the simple solution here would be about a half inch of newspaper soaked to the guts covered by mulch of either hardwood uh, mulch or straw or something like that. And that'll suppress that clover very, very well. Do try to physically remove as much of it as possible. And for those of you planting cover crops into beds that you're not going to use until next season, unless they're going to be a perennial system, don't plant perennial cover crops. Uh, plant annual cover crops that will either winter or, or summer kill or just simply reach the end of their life expectancy and go away. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Eric from the cornfields of Indiana, and I'm just listening to your episode talking about uh, the cancer of uh, economics and everything. And uh, I know you like either a question or a comment or that sort of thing, so I guess I'll go with a comment, and I can even make it a negative one. I don't like what you said about integration. For years, I've been against, uh, you know, border crossings and illegal, and they broke the law to get over here. But when I hear another libertarian speak logically and rationally about something that I don't like and I know is wrong, but I hear it laid out logically, rationally, what's going to happen, it helps me accept the fact that, yes, indeed, this is exactly what's going to happen. Because I tell you, honestly, I think you're right. Libertarian, you can't demand another people learn a language that would be like the schools demanding that I learn a language or learn another religion. And granted, our schools are doing that nowadays, but they're wrong. That's not libertarian. And uh, so I, I totally see where you're coming from on that. And I just wanted to thank you for uh, being able to express and analyze things, uh, call it insight, or if you want to call it analysis. The point is, you're bringing facts up to us and letting us digest them before they happen and that way we can at least emotionally if not rationally or morally get on the right side of an issue even where as a patriotic American or, or whatever moniker you want to go under we can accept it we can understand it because frankly we're not going to change it and you either can can get along with that and, and not lose your control because you see it coming, you've understood it, and you can prepare yourself on, on whatever end of the spectrum you choose to. But uh, I just wanted to tell you, thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. 
uh, eventually I would have come to that understanding myself, but you definitely made it a lot easier. And I uh, thank you. Just keep up uh, your good work. Thank you so much. I'm not going to too deeply revisit the topic that he was speaking about, but I think the biggest point that I had brought up when I was talking about how an economic boot and bust was going to affect immigration and, and, and with immigration heavily in and then heavily out and, and how certain things are going to play out was more uh, instead of that to the point that I stated that these, these laws that people want to pass, like you're required to learn English to become an immigrant of the United States, is completely unreasonable. Um, first of all, most people that come here, if they're here long enough, they're going to learn English or their kids are going to learn English. It's a self-correcting issue. Um, but here's the thing. It's no right. I have no right to tell you how to live your life. I mean, it's like you said, it's just like me telling you, well, if you're going to come to America, you have to be a Christian. I mean, most people, even Christians, would say that's completely ridiculous. That's, that's, that's completely against church and state. Well, why am I going to have a right to tell you you have to learn English? Now, the other side of that was I don't think that we should be required to provide services to you in Spanish. If you need something from our government and you come down to the local governmental office, it's up to you to provide your own interpreter. And you don't get to use the excuse of I didn't understand because I don't speak English as to why you violated the law. You take that responsibility on yourself. That's, that's libertarianism. And my other thing was I think I ticked off some libertarians during that episode because I said that, you know, illegal immigration should be considered illegal immigration and you shouldn't be coming here right now. And you're supposed to be over open borders and freedom and everybody can move and go, yes, not when we have a socialist state, though, that provides you everything that you need. Right? So if, if And I'll tell you that all of the, 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 the hatred of illegal immigrants would dry up and blow away except for the most ignorant people that are always going to be opposed to anybody that's not just like them, all of it would dry up and blow away if when an illegal immigrant came to America, or when any immigrant came to America, and it was easy to do, that they got nothing except an opportunity. If that was the case, we wouldn't have half of the problems that we do, and the half of the people that are here, that are really here for the reasons we always hear in the sob stories, would still be here, and more people just like them would be here And the other half that are sponges on society wouldn't be because they prefer the socialism of Mexico or the socialism of whatever nation they're here illegally from because they're not just from Mexico. I mean, that's just, that is just, in a way, that's bigotry when people are like, it's always about the Mexicans. It's not always about the Mexicans. There's plenty of people in this country illegally that don't speak Spanish, by the way. Okay? From other places. And if you made a system like it used to be here, you come, everyone can come. You want to come here, come on, but bring your work ethic and bring your, your drive and your desire because when you show up, all you get is a welcome, a handshake, and a smile, and you're, you're on your own after that. All of this crap that your politicians get you hating each other about would go away, and you have to ask yourself, why don't they make it go away? Because they want you divided. They want you divided. You know, if you're a Democrat, you're supposed to be for comprehensive immigration reform. And if you're a Republican, you're supposed to be opposed to comprehensive immigration reform. And the conversation we won't have is, why don't we just make it what you guys say it's supposed to be? Why don't we just make it the people that are willing to come here and compete and do their best to be part of America can do that, but they don't get any assistance in doing it. You're coming from outside. You're choosing to come here Come here and choose to work, come here and choose to be productive, or come here and choose to do nothing. But if you do nothing, we're not going to give you a gift from the taxpayers of America to come here and do nothing. It would be very, very simple to fix the problem, 
but they don't want to fix the problem. Because the problem is based on the fact that we have a socialist economy and a fascist state. And if they fix the problem, then you know what? We wouldn't have a socialist economy and a fascist state anymore. And no matter how diametrically opposed the D's and the R's seem to be, that's what they actually want. So since they both want the same thing, and they just want to run their dictatorship a little bit of a different way, what you have are basically two mafia families fighting for control. But you really don't want to make a deal with either one of them if you really pay attention to what's going on. I also wanted to add something else to that, and that is... I've said before, when it comes to taking advice from people and learning from other people, that my father had a saying, and it's one I've always tried to live by, uh, in many instances with business, and that is that don't take advice from someone who's less successful than you at what they're giving you advice about. So in other words, if someone's giving you advice about gardening but they're dead broke, that doesn't mean you can't take their advice about gardening, especially if they have a big, beautiful garden. Um, but if somebody's never grown anything more than, than a weed and they're giving you advice about gardening, don't take it. Or if somebody's dead broke and telling you what you should do with your money, don't take their advice. But he also told me something else. He goes, that doesn't mean you don't listen to what you don't agree with. He said, if you're ever being taught by a teacher and you agree with everything that you hear, you haven't learned anything. Because you only agree with things when you already know them. The things that you disagree with are your greatest opportunities to learn. And let's go ahead and take that other call now. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA here. So the past, you know, two years that I've had a garden, I've done where they say, okay, build up your rows for these ones, build your troughs for these other seeds. And I'm thinking of trying to do more of what you've been recommending, getting the mulch, putting down the paper and cardboard, and controlling the weeds that way. But I was trying to understand, you know, when they say this plant needs to have a, you know, a six or ten inch mound, um, how do I do that, you know, with cardboard and paper and mulch? Do I really need that if I'm doing that uh, since I'm kind of keeping the rest of the weeds from being able to grow and compete? So I'm just trying to get an idea if I need to really be wasting all this time building these raised rows to plant my seeds in or if that's just kind of something outdated and unnecessary. Thanks, Jack. Well, the answer on dig a trough, plant in a mound, all that stuff like that, and by and large, is pretty much unnecessary. There are a few things that make sense to follow those instructions with, specifically if you don't have another plan for what to do about it. So, for instance, you know, celery is an example of something that you usually be told to plant in a in a, in a trench, and when the plant gets up. To, past the top of the trench, basically you backfill the little trench, and that sort of blanches the celery and gives that nice closed, sweet result. But I don't know a lot of people grow in celery. I mean, some people do, but it's not one of the most common crops, because it's hard to germinate, and it's not really expensive, and it's something that even finding organic is pretty easy to do, so most people choose not to grow. And that's the one that I can think of that, unless you're going to blanch it manually somehow, it kind of makes sense to follow directions. But You know, you always read in squash, plant in mounds three feet apart, and I just take squashes and put them in the ground and they grow. Uh, you hear it with cucumbers, mounds, and you hear melons in mounds and all. I've never in my life made a mound to plant something into unless the whole mound was the bed. So when you're doing a raised bed, basically the whole thing already is a mound, and I guess that you can make some case for it with the way that the... I, it doesn't make sense to me. Nature doesn't build mounds to plant stuff into. Seeds land in places, and if everything's there that they need, they grow. 
I've had people say, well, how do you plant in a, cause I'm building these raised beds, right? That are like this, this mound structure. How do you plant in the side of that and have a, a pepper plant there? Pepper knows what way up is. The innate intelligence of a plant, it just on a slope. It doesn't mean it's not going to grow up. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sitting with these little moderate angles on the edges of my beds and the center is pretty flat. Um, Sepp Holzer's planting into a 70-degree angle, and the plant knows what to do with itself. Nature has this innate intelligence. I, I do want to talk a little bit, though, here, kind of linking back to the other thing about the keeping the weeds down and the mulching and stuff like that, because there's some important things to understand. When you first establish beds, even if you paper them, or if you just... I, I'm not even a big fan of always papers. I'm just mulch. Right, and mulch and mulch deep, four inches. You know, wood chips or straw are my two go-to's for mulching, and I like wood chips because they're available and cheap, and they really help build the soil over time. And any of the concerns that new people have about they leach nitrogen out of the soil is complete crap. Don't believe it. Don't buy it. It doesn't happen because you only have a very thin layer of contact of soil and wood. Just add that one surface, and all the rest of that wood is sitting up above there, and it slowly decomposes into soil over time. So there's a very limited interaction there, and it works for the forest floor, so it'll work for your garden. But it's very normal that when you first put in beds to get quite a bit of weeds, and it's important early on, and this is going to go into a whole thing. We're going to have a really cool thing about no-till gardening coming up, a, a, a contest that I'm going to run with Paul Wheaton and Steve Harris. Some of you guys on Facebook have seen a preliminary, but this is going to be awesome. But no-till gardening is what we're talking about here, one form of it. And it's very normal for when you first put that in, even with a thick mulch layer, that you get, a, get quite a bit of weed activity. But when that new bed's there, and it's all loose, friable soil, and that weed comes up, and you reach down and grab it, it just comes out, roots and all. If you'll pay attention and not let it get ahead of you in that year that you're establishing the bed, you'll have almost no weeds to ever deal with because you have to think about what's going to happen now. The soil below there is completely protected by the mulch layer. And a weed seed has a very hard time ever getting down under that mulch. The only time it has an opportunity is when you pull it aside to do your planting. So whenever you do planting, be on the lookout for weeds around the area you've planted because some seeds can get down in there. And you just pull them out when they're young and easy to remove. And as soon as your seedling's up, if it's a seedling that you need to keep the mulch off of because it's a very small, delicate seedling, you pull back a furrow of your mulch and you have a dirt layer and you plant your row of lettuce seeds, for instance. As soon as those plants are up over the top of that mulch, just fill it back in, kind of like the trench that the caller was talking about here. So you backfill it with the mulch around it, and now it's nice and woody and firm, and it can grow up from there. There's a very limited window for the, the seeds to get, the weed seeds to get in there. So how will the weed even get in? Well, what'll happen is between earth moving around and rain and all, a seed will get down into that mulch a bit, maybe an inch deep, and it's a nice moist environment in there, and it'll germinate, it'll start sending out roots, and it'll start sprouting up through. But 90% of the root structures where? It's in the mulch layer. Hasn't got a chance to establish itself yet. Then you just pull it out, push the mulch back. And is it a constant weeding? Kind of, but it's a very satisfying, very easy to do weeding. In a perennial system, eventually your perennials will have so much dominance that the weeds really can't get up ahead of steam. In an annual system, you do have to stay on this a bit, but nowhere near the way that people think you do. Now, co compare this to, to, to tilling. When you till, 
Not only do you compact the soil below the till level, so if your tiller goes down six inches, at seven inches you're compacting the shit out of the soil. That's because that's how a tiller works. If you if you t till a till a bed, those of you that are convinced your tiller works, and then go pull the dirt back until you get to the layer where the tiller stopped working and see how compacted that soil is. Do that every year and see what happens. You're basically building a container in the ground when you do that of compacted soil. But you till it, and you plant in it, and there's no weeds because you've killed them all. You've chopped them up. I got those weeds. And you start to see weeds coming, just like you do with the system I've described. So you go out there and you pull a full, you pull, pull a few, you pull a few, and eventually they get ahead of you because the soil's not covered, it's not mulched, and every weed seed that blows into your garden finds a great place to grow. You're watering it, you're, you're, you're fertilizing it, you're composting it, whatever, and it's found that spot. It's like, whoo-hoo-hoo, I can grow on rocks, so wait till you see what I can do with this. And it throws a party, and it starts growing. So you have to keep constantly, constantly dealing with it. So eventually you get to a point where you fire the tiller up, you go in between the rows, every, was, anywhere you can till without hitting your own plants, you till, and you deal with it, and you fight with it, and you get to the end of the season, and then you let the bed go to weeds, and then next spring, or you know, if you go in a fall garden, you till early in the fall or the late summer, and you till it again. And then you tell me that your tiller controls the weeds. You're growing weeds. When we do this approach with a deep mulch layer, again, I don't care if it's wood, I don't care if it's straw, I don't care what it is, as long as it works, as long as it's a... A living material, not really a living material, but it was alive at one time. Something that will break down. I don't want to use rubber, for instance, to do this, or rock. I want something that's building soil as it goes. What I eventually end up with is so few seeds are able to ever get into contact with that soil, the weed problem abates over time. It doesn't mean it won't take work in the first year, and it doesn't mean it won't take a little maintenance and upkeep. But it sure is a hell of a lot easier. And the question about time management is I'm not out tilling my garden pulling weeds all the time. When I walk out to pick a pepper and there's a weed sticking out, I'm picking the pepper with one hand and yanking the weed out with the other. It's almost like, it's, it, you see, it's like permaculture, like two functions in one. It doesn't take me any more effort to yank that big jalapeno off that's about to get wrapped in bacon and pull out that, that, that dandelion that managed to sort of get a hold there and just watch that root go Like pulling spaghetti, like like sucking spaghetti in your mouth, like a noodle. He's just opposite direction, pulling it out. And you just throw that thing on top of the bed, and it's more organic matter, and it's my nutrients and minerals. It's very, very simple. But the furrows and all that, mound this and do that. And another thing to start ignoring is the planting distances on those seed packets. You know, get like a book on, you know, uh, with a biointensive gardening. Uh, John Jevons' book, and, and look at the planting distances in there, or square foot gardening, the planting distances there. And, and I'm saying, I'm not saying do exactly that, but get closer to them. The biggest way we control weeds is by putting something to occupy the space, because if you don't, nature will. So when you've got all your plants perfectly spaced out and big spaces between them, there's all that space you're fighting to maintain control over. When you bring the spacing in and you're using deep, rich, organic material to grow in and it can handle the higher density planting, there's less space for the weeds to occupy. By the time you get your annual garden established into early summer, there's so much shade down there, very few things can germinate in that amount of shade. Plus you've got a mulch layer. It just works better. Anyway, start thinking about things you could do with a tiller you weren't going to use as a tiller anymore. Because, again, Paul Wheat and Steve Harris and I are going to come out with a contest. We're going to try to put some real money and prizes behind it. And all I'll say for now is it's going to be really cool. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ben from California, and I have a question about watering my garden. 
I hear you talk about watering your garden with aquaponics using fish water, and I have a 60-gallon aquarium that's a saltwater tank, and I'm wondering if the high salt content would have any negative effects on my garden. I recently started a vegetable garden with my daughter, and the last thing I want is to ruin my vegetables. I appreciate any insight. Thanks for your help. Bye. Yeah, that's the easiest one I've ever, I think, ever put on the show and had to answer. Don't do it. Salt water's not good for irrigation. Um, you'll notice that a lot of people that, that live in parts of the world where they have very poor irrigation capabilities and they live in, uh, but they live in a place where the ocean's right there. Uh, they don't go pumping ocean water into the fields because you kill the field uh, with salt. And it's absolutely the case that you would have that type of a problem because the marine aquarium has a salinity that's almost identical to ocean water you set it up that way um, so i wouldn't do it i wouldn't think about it i wouldn't consider it those of you with freshwater aquariums though when you do a, a, a water change and a gravel vacuum and things like that yeah take that wastewater out and put it on your plants just water your plants with it um, and i mean i try to do this with any kind of extra fertility look at your garden or look at your perennials and if you see something that's a little bit lagging Use that extra fertility where you see the lagging and then observe because maybe that plant doesn't respond to it. And if you know that that extra fertility was primarily a nitrogen source of fertility and that plant didn't respond to it, you start to learn to recognize, well, that plant looks a certain way when it's not happy, but based on what I just did with supplemental nitrogen and no change, nitrogen isn't what this plant needed. But then you go and you lay down something with a calcium boost and that plant responds. Now you know that plant looks that way when it's deficient in calcium. Because you can learn only so much from books about, well, this and that and the other thing. When it comes down to it, a healthy plant looks healthy. And you know it's healthy. And the biggest thing that we can do is take all of these additional sources of fertility and nutrient that we have and apply them to places where it looks like things aren't quite right. And when you get the response you're looking for, remember that. And you'll be able to identify it. That's how people become, you know, they call it master gardeners or whatever. I, I'm not a huge fan of master gardener programs, but the concept, that's what it's really about is experience over time. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Uh, this is Max from Ohio. I have a question about where to plant apple trees. Um, that's my question. And uh, the situation I have is we have two and a half acres, so we do have quite a bit of land. But it's kind of like, it's kind of on a hill, um, so there's a swell and it comes down where the house is and we have a septic system, and here's where my question comes into play, uh, then another little swell down, um, kind of a little bit left of the septic tank. My thought was, because my property line ends at the bottom of this hill, and I was thinking about putting some apple trees uh, right there on the hillside, so whatever apples in excess you know, we weren't going to use would just basically just roll off the hill and off our property for the most part. Um, but now I'm concerned about the septic tank being nearby. I wanted to kind of figure out what a safe distance was to be away from the septic tank or even if that was really an issue. And actually, I do have a second part of that question is I heard that if you do apple trees, you're not supposed to plant all the same breed our species, rather, uh, but, but you're actually supposed to have at least two different kinds. I don't know if that was true. Um, hopefully, um, you can shed some light on this, and uh, I really appreciate everything you do, and you're changing our lives, Jack, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. 
Well, you certainly want to be careful with anything you plant near a septic tank, like a tree that could actually cause damage to the tank. But I don't think the tank is really what you're asking about. I think you're asking about something I get all the time. I had two questions about this today that I just chose this one because it was a little different than what I've answered before about the same thing. What can I plant and how close can I plant to where the septic system's leach field is? Because the leach field is probably the most expensive part and the easiestly damaged part of a septic system. And the, the reality is this. Anything that's planted over a leach field should be relatively shallow-rooted. And if there's anything edible, it should be something that never touches the ground. So a bush or a shrub with some edible things that's got a fairly modest root system is probably more than okay. Certainly if we start to move around to the peripheral edges of it with things like currants and gooseberries and stuff like that. A tree, no way. Because you've got these big, massive roots that are going to drive into there. Uh, and they can disrupt the entire way that the leach field works and damage it or destroy it. And then you end up having to replace it, which is expensive, and remove the tree, which you don't want. Generally speaking, trees tend to have root systems that are just about the diameter of their crowns. So that's how you have to look at this. If you're planting a tree, and you're planting a tree that's going to have, when it's mature, about a 20-foot canopy in diameter, then it needs to be far enough away that its roots don't get in there. Because even if it just barely gets in there, and it finds all this nutrient, and it'll send in the... It's like, wow, I know I'm supposed to match my canopy and all, but boy, there's some good... And they'll start really aggressively sending out longer, thicker root systems to obtain that nutrient and moisture. So you want to stay well outside of the final canopy size. So if you're doing semi-dwarf and dwarf apples, you can get a lot closer than a full-size apple. All right. I want to say some stuff on the apples as well. You may not have the greatest results with apples in Ohio. The northeast has a climate that seems like it would be good for apples, but you don't get a lot of apple productivity in the northeast. Basically, the best productivity for apples is west of the Rocky Mountains, the northwest being an ideal location. But you can do it. I'm not telling you not to. I'm just saying you might want to consider some other varieties there. Um, but definitely keep the roots the hell away from your leach field. And you need to have a good understanding of where that is when you're making plantings like trees and any large plants. Definitely don't, people ask all the time, can I put a vegetable garden over it? The roots from the vegetable garden won't do any harm, but you can get soil contact with some bacteria and things that come up from a leach field. And it's just, you know, the reality is you could probably do it. And if you wash everything, you'd probably be fine, but it's a risk you shouldn't take. You know, don't go messing around with E. coli. People die from that stuff. Um, now, on apples, when you're talking about multiple varieties of apples, absolutely. Absolutely, unless you live in an area where everybody in their neighbor, neighbor has apples. And there's all different varieties all around. You're probably not going to have much of a problem. But generally speaking, not only do you need different species, but you need species that are different that bloom around the same time. Some apples bloom really early, some mid-season, and some late. So you generally want to match up, at least if you have an early blooming species of apple, you want another species that's a good pollinator for it. And if you get the rain tree nursery catalog, they'll give you a list of pollinators and, and, and the ones that go best with each other. Now, I think it's Queen Anne or something like that, but there are a couple self-fertile apples. Even they do better. Even they do better 
with a cross-pollination setup. So you want to, if you had four apple trees and you want to have early and late apples, then you should have two earlies and two lates at a minimum. Another thing you can do to really increase the pollination of your apple trees is plant one or two crab apples. They have so many more blossoms than a conventional apple tree. They go crazy with them. Most crab apples are good to add to cider, and some of them are actually pretty decent straight up eating, like golden, is it golden hornet? No, golden raindrops. Golden raindrops is an awesome crab apple. And, and they're going to be compatible and help with pollination. So if I was putting in a mini apple orchard, you know, and I was planting as many as eight trees, I'd probably plant ten and put a couple crab apples and try to find some crab apples that are kind of also different bloom times so that you spread out the period of time where it's available and you'll do fairly well with that. But no trees on top of septic leach fields. And with a septic tank, it's a little bit harder for a tree to Get inside a septic tank, but if you're close to your tank, you're probably relatively close to your house, and you're probably relatively close to your leach field, so you wouldn't go there anyway. So I don't know how your property exactly lays out. You kind of described it, but it's hard in audio. But get the roots away from the leach field. If you know, if, if a little bit of it touches the edge at some point from a smaller, again, dwarf or semi-dwarf apple, it's probably not going to be that big a deal. And most people that are planting semi-dwarfs, not full-size trees, so that makes the canopy, you know, in the neighborhood of uh, 15 to 25 feet. And pruning the canopy and keeping the tree at a smaller size, keeping the tree into the 10-foot height range, 15-foot diameter range, will help control the root system. The root system generally is right at the edge of the drip line, which is right on just on the outside of the canopy. And, and you'll probably be fine if you do that. But no trees on leash fields, folks, and no Root vegetables are vegetables that make ground contact on top of leach fields. And I would stick to small, when I say small, relatively small-rooted perennials if they're anywhere within the leach field area. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Adam from Houston. My question is, how do I stop dogs from peeing on my newly planted trees? Uh, I live on a corner lot, and we have a good bit of grass outside the back fence on the side that gets all the best sun and it's the best place to put these uh, fruit trees uh, but I'm afraid that the large amount of dogs in the neighborhood walking up and down the street are peeing on them every day and uh, and it's kind of showing and doing some damage. Um, when I looked online it said that uh, enough dogs daily doing that can kill your trees so uh, is there anything I could spray on it uh, or spray in the area without actually having to put up a, a fence barrier outside of my already backyard fence to stop them? I uh, appreciate the show. Thanks. I'm going to give you two low-tech, easy solutions that will likely get the trees at least established to the point where you don't have to really worry about this anymore because uh, you see dogs pee on trees all the time. They go nowhere. But, yes, young trees especially – Urine has a lot of salt in it. It has a lot of nitrogen. It's actually a good fertilizer, but like any fertilizer used in too much concentration too many times, it can actually burn things and stuff like that. That's why it will turn grass brown. It's not, it's, it's basically burning the roots and it can have the same effect on your trees. Trees are a little bit hardier, but it's, it's not good for them. So a simple solution, you go to Home Depot 
and get yourself some fencing, the you know stuff that comes in a roll. It doesn't even have to be very tall fencing, stuff that's maybe a foot high and some small stakes for it, and put a you know a, a two or three foot diameter fence around all your trees, um, and just put that in the ground, and it can, it'll look pretty nice. It won't look you know over excessive or anything like that. And then the dogs will pee out there, and they're outside of that new tree's drip line, and they won't pee there as much because it doesn't give them the same sense of satisfaction, and that would be one way to do it. Uh, another way to do it, go out. If you can run a, a garden hose out back there, and uh, you have a, a hose bib on the back side where you can run a hose out there, and get yourself a couple mo motion-activated sprinklers and set them up around your, uh, your trees and turn the water on and leave them there. And anytime somebody walks through there with their dog and lets them pee on your property or they lets their dog just wander on your property and the motion sensor sets off, sprinkler go off. And uh, it's not as effective with dogs as it is with cats, but it's pretty effective. Um, some dogs, like Blackie, when he was in his prime as a young pup, if that would have happened to him, he would have been in heaven. He would have been there playing in the sprinkler and biting the water and You know, but most dogs I've owned, it sent them running. I know send Max running. He doesn't like sprinklers, um, so that would. And, and you know, well, what about a neighbor that's walking their dog through there to get sprayed? Well, maybe they'll learn to stay off your property with their dogs. I mean, it's that, and it's it's just it's just water. It's not like you're putting acid in there or something like that. So that would be my other solution. And you could just put motion activated sprinkler into like Amazon search box. You'll find all kinds of them, and uh, I've seen them used. And if you go to uh, YouTube and put in motion action activated sprinkler, uh, you'll find a video, if you look hard enough, of a cat uh, learning his lesson from one of them. And it's kind of comical. I'll see if I can find it for you and put a link to it in today's show notes. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. Curtis from Kentucky here. I've <clears throat> uh, got a question for you, a short version. What would you want to consider when building a house on a homestead? Expanded version. I have 10 acres of land that I own free and clear. My wife and I are being very realistic about what we can actually afford. A uh, family of four, husband, wife, two small children, 1,800 to 2,000 square feet, three bed, two baths. Um, max budget is probably 200,000. We'd like to stay in the vicinity of 150 to 175. Um, we are considering things like building the house out of structural insulated panels, south facing, um, tried fuel furnace, propane, electric, and wood, putting the house on the highest place on the property for water catchment and gravity flow. Just with a preparedness mindset, what else would you consider and think about when you can start from scratch building a house? on a homestead that you plan on staying in for the next 30 to 50 years. Thanks for everything you do, Jack. You really do make a difference. Well, it sounds like the construction cost does not include the land. This is like you got the land free and clear, so you're going to going to build a house. So the budget of 150 to 200,000 is for house construction, um, not for land and house construction. The house and everything that goes with it. The very first thing I would tell you to do is going to sound like absolutely nothing that you would have expected me to say is don't build a three bedroom, build a four bedroom. And I'm going to tell you the reason I'm going to say that is that the, the cost differential will stay in budget. And you can do the house very well finished and do a four instead of a three bedroom. Because from preparedness, we don't just think of the zombies and the end of the world. We think of all the things that can go wrong. 
And whether we want to believe it or not, no matter where we move or when we move there, there is a chance that one day we will have to sell that property due to circumstances or choice. And in that case, we need what's called an exit strategy. Everybody talks about exit strategies when we're going to go to war. You know, we're going to go to war in Iraq. What's our exit strategy? If it doesn't work out the way we planned, or even if it does, when are we coming home? What's our exit strategy? And then the same person that says that turns around and buys a house with no exit strategy. The reason I'm saying to consider a fourth bedroom is you will not regret having more space, and it will make your home more marketable if you have to sell it. Especially a rural property, a tremendous number of people that live in rural environments either have larger families or they're telecommuters, and that fourth bedroom gets turned into an office. Uh, we actually have a five-bedroom home that we bought here because we got a great deal on it. Um, but two of the bedrooms are dedicated offices, one for me and one for Dorothy. That made this house so much more appealing than a lot of other houses that, as far as some of the work this place needs, they already had that done. But I was like, I can do the work. Adding a room is difficult. So that's one of the first things that I would think about. You mentioned putting the house on the highest point of the land. I'm not necessarily going to tell you to do that. What I want to do is I want to put the house at a higher point on the land than a lot of the surrounding land. But if you can hold water in a pond at the highest point in the land, if you find your key point, highest point in your property that you can hold water in a pond, put that pond there. Put that house at a lower grade than that, and if you ever need to, you can always use that pond to put water pressure into your house. And you might say, well, I don't want to drink pond water. Well, there's ways that you can make it where that's possible, but the point of having pressure, water pressure to the home when the grid's down, you might end up doing things a hell of a lot different if the grid's up with a long-term grid-down scenario. So I want some water below my home. I don't want a massive five-acre impounded pond that if it breaks is going to flood my house out. But, you know, a little you know, 20th of an acre or 10th of an acre pond above grade from the house um, that has a lot of advantages, and if you build it right and you build it in certain ways, even if you have a failure, it's not going to flood your house out anyway. But you've got that pressure available, so that's another thing that I would look at. As far as energy efficiency, we just did a show on that this week with Jacob Nielsen. I'm not going to go into that, therefore, and say that you may want to really listen to that show. Uh, that was a show that we aired. Just yesterday, episode 1089. So if you look up yesterday's show, 1089, you can hear all about energy efficiency. A lot of the things that you stated are many of the things that I would say southern facing, considering the exposure to the sun, the wind, environments like that. I would always advise anybody building a home to try to temper expense with value uh, and long-term value of getting the house as far from the road as is possible without going into extensive costs with bringing utilities in. So start thinking about you know the location also in relationship to the road. Uh, there is no doubt that, uh, that uh, when you're trying to sell a property like that, that if you have uh, two properties that were identical, the houses were almost the same floor plan, the lay of the land was about the same, they were in about the same condition, they had the same amount of land, and one house was, let's say, 30 feet from a road, even a very low-travel road, and another house was 100 feet from a road, that most buyers would put a preference on the one 
one further from the road. We want to build as much value into our homes as possible, especially when the value doesn't have a commensurate expense. And what I mean by that is if I can add $20,000 worth of value to a home for an additional $5,000 investment on the construction or setup of that home, I'll spend that $5,000 every single time. That's right back to the fourth bedroom. I guarantee you, whatever builder you're going to use can build you pretty much the same house, the same space in all the rooms with a fourth bedroom for almost the same cost if you're smart about how you negotiate it. Get that fourth room in there. It doesn't have to be a dedicated bedroom either. It could be a three-bedroom with a room that's meant to be an office. Uh, that's nice, but it almost is better if it could stand alone as a bedroom. That gives, if you ever have that exit strategy, and I know you're building your dream home and you're not thinking this way, but you have to. You have to think this way. You have to think, well, what if something goes wrong and not for the whole world? What if it's just for us? Or what if we just decide one day we want something different? It happens. So those are some of the things kind of outside of what I think you would have expected me to say. Um, in the end... When I look at building a home, I think about what I want it to do for me, or if I'm looking at it for somebody else, what I want, what they want it to do for them. I'm not trying to build a fortress. I'm not trying to build, you know, a, a, a bunker that no one will ever see or anything like that. That's what, that's, that's what the person wants. And I'll give you some more thoughts on that, I think, with our last call today. So let's go ahead and take that now. Yeah, my question is about bug out location housing. Um, I know a lot of people think RVs are the thing, but I feel like I've heard you say before that you did the RV thing and it didn't work out. Um, what is it that you would recommend as a good bug-out location, shelter, house? Um, what do you think the ideal situation is for that? Thanks. So the, the, the problem is always when we look for what's ideal, because when we look for what's ideal, we presume to know what's best for somebody else. And we really don't. We can just look at the strengths and weaknesses of different options and determine what's most ideal for us, given our, our, our needs, our desires, our wants, our budgets, and our current situations in life. And so, for instance, you mentioned that I tried the RV thing and it didn't work. I tried the RV thing and I didn't like it. Let me put it to you that way. Um, I did not like towing a vehicle surrounded by giant trucks on the highway, uh, up and down hills, around corners, through construction areas, having to get somewhere and set it up, etc., um, I didn't find that uh, they stayed really as cool as I would like them to in the heat. And there's some ways to get around that with certain things you could do. But overall, I didn't really like having an RV. But some people, I mean, there's a reason it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Some people love them. So if you love RVs, there's nothing wrong with it. But for a bug out location, I think they do have some inherent weaknesses. Number one, you got to get there with the damn thing. So keeping a fully stocked RV and being able to bug out with it is kind of a cool idea. I mean, I'm not even totally opposed to a different, you know, I did a hybrid RV uh, with a slide out and these two pop-up beds, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I would never buy one of those again. If I bought another RV, I would never have kind of a tent structure built into it. As cool as that seemed, it made set up a pain in the ass, and it just wasn't as livable as it would have been with a more conventional arrangement. So... There's part of the issues. I maybe didn't pick the best kind of RV for me, but for me, backing it into places, towing it, all of that crap just made it a very expensive, stupid tax. I made a bad decision, bought something expensive, only got half my money back, and didn't really enjoy it. Doesn't mean you wouldn't. 
But for a bug out location, let's say what I would put as a minimum for a, a, a quality bug out location housing, at minimum a solid walled structure that's decently insulated. Uh, they can be locked up and you can live in comfortably. That's, so it could be a converted shed. I mean, you can get one of those really big, nice, you know, barn style sheds that you see in the parking lots at Home Depot and all, and turn it into a little mini cabin. And that could work just fine for you if that's within your budget and your means. Um, if I had my druthers, right? If I had, I wanted, like, you want to, like, if you said, well, what's your idea personally of an ideal bug out location? It would be an earth contact structure. It might be an earth ship. It might be some sort of other earth contact structure. It would not be highly visible because it's a bug-out structure. I'm not going to be there 24-7, 365, and I want it to be somewhat inconspicuous. Uh, I want it to be very, very self-sufficient from a standpoint of heating and cooling, and earth contact takes me 90% there with just a few modifications and additions. It would have locations within it that even if you got into it, you would never know were there. In other words, hidden areas, difficult places to find, secure locations where the majority of the most important supplies would be stored so that any, even a person that went in there found it and got in it and was able to loot it would only get the things that are least important to me. Um, those are the types of things that I would look for if I was, you know, blue sky budget, here's a bunch of money, Jack, Bill, whatever you want. I'd probably hire someone that knew what they were doing to build me an earth ship. Um, and, and really do a good job of, with the concept of not just building it in the ground, but into a structure, into the side of a hill, looking out and making it in such a way that if you weren't on the property, you would be highly unlikely to even know that it was there. That's the type of thing I would do because that type of a structure, I'm going to be plenty warm in, in the, in the, uh, in the winter and I'm going to be plenty cooling in the summer. Uh, Cody Lundeen lives in a very similar type of structure that I'm talking from dual survivor. And, uh, he, he lives in the, in the desert where it's hot as blazes sometimes and pretty dad gone cold at other times. Uh, so I think that's probably the best structure I know of. Um, for a bug out location, but there's a lot of options out there. Um, I would prefer an RV and a generator and battery system for it to nothing, uh, really, really quick. And it depends on who you are and how many people are going there and what it's supposed to be. Is it a bug out location so that you can live relatively comfortably if you lose your house due to some kind of you know, individual event, or is it a bug out location because you're planning for a major shift in society that's going to make it completely unsafe to live anywhere else for a period of time, or make it so unsafe that you would choose that over living in a suburb or a town or even a small rural community? I mean, it's all about what you're looking to get out of it. Um, there was, a, I can't remember the name of it now, but a stainless steel silo house, basically, uh, that, that looked like a pretty good option. It, it, again, it always is going to come back down to what you want. But personally, I'm not telling you what you because I'm like, you don't have an earth ship, you don't have nothing. It would be something like an earth ship, some sort of earth contact structure. Uh, you know, Paul Wheaton's Wafati, if anybody ever actually builds one. Um, Mike Ayler's uh, underground house uh, structures. Those would be uh, the type of thing I would look at. In fact, I would really uh, recommend you get Mike Ayler's book on underground housing if you want to consider some type of earth contact structure. It's proven, it's effective, it's affordable, and it works. 
Uh, and it can be as simple or as elaborate as you want. And I, th I think that actually, if you want any type of earth contact structure, that's where I would start with Mike Eller's book. It's like the $50 and up underground house or something like that. And uh, I will uh, put a link to that in the show notes. And with that, um, I want to remind you again, it would really mean a lot to me if you guys would help me out with this fight. On behalf of Jessica Hudson with the uh, with Williams Township in Michigan, and uh, contribute to her legal defense fund. And when you do, uh, let these clowns know. I'm going to put out a post a little bit later today. It will have all the contact information for these folks, including a basic script like I gave you, a little bit shorter of what I think you should tell them uh, when you let them know that you voted or not voted. When you let you know that you supported Jessica financially. And again, if you contact these people, do so respect. Respectfully, for God's sakes, respectfully and professionally, don't call anybody any names, just let them know that you've supported her financially and you intend to do it again if necessary. Again, they don't need to know that it was five bucks or, you know, they don't need to know that somebody might throw this woman five grand and be, I mean, you never know who's out there that can help out. Um, but I don't care if it's a dollar. Do what you can because I want it, I want to take you back to the letter that I read at the beginning of the show. I know there's thousands of you that are living that dream or working so you can live that dream. And if it can be put down one place by some local thugs who will ignore their own law to do it, it can be done anywhere. Let's draw the line in the sand. Let's fight the battle. Let's win this one. Let's put another one in the W column because it feels good when we do it, folks. And let, let, let's let those folks know up there, the ones that are fighting on the side of right, they're not alone. The revolution is you, the revolution is them. Let's make it happen. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Revolution. 